What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Whitmire, co-founder, CEO of Flowcast, inactive CPA. Welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Balance Sheets, the podcast where I kind of talk about whatever I want, generally in the accounting, finance, tech space. Um, and for today, I'm really excited. So we have a great guest, uh, Ashley Greasehammer, is joining us today. She was controller of the year in 2022, as selected by Flowcast, has been a great customer of ours for several years. And so it was really awesome that we got to recognize her and reward her as part of our, our controller of the year award last year. So um, Ashley, I don't want to spend too much time introducing yourself on your behalf. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have a chance to chat today. Um, yeah, so I'm Ashley. Um, I am the VP controller at Love Every, a Boise-based uh, e-commerce company that sells baby and toddler toys in subscription boxes. Um, I have been with them since 2020. Um, and before that, worked for another e-commerce startup um, and then a private equity-owned company prior to that. Um, I'm originally from Michigan, moved out to Boise, um, in 2018, 2019, uh, went to Michigan. So go blue. Um, uh, that's pretty much everything I think everyone needs to know. Well, when we were, uh, when we were catching up before the, before the interview here, you mentioned to me, you have a, a daughter who's about three. I'm coinciding that with when you joined love every in 2020, did that play yes. a role in it? Like was the product kind of inspiring for you and something you wanted to join the company over? Yeah, so the company that I worked for prior to Love Every um, was also in the baby and toddler space. They okay. were a traditional clothing retailer. So they uh, sold online through their own website. It was called T Collection and then also through wholesale partners um, like uh, you know Nordstrom um, and some other big names like that. I was not a parent at the time and I was not a parent when I joined Love Every. Uh, I would say a lot of people that come to us are customers and parents before they join the company and they're super excited about the brand. Um, I've just always really enjoyed kind of, you know, customer facing businesses, uh, brands that are in people's homes that are recognizable that people can see. So it was kind of a convenient accident. I joined uh, Love Every in May of 2020 and then found out we were expecting um, in July. So it was oh, okay. pretty, pretty good timing. Uh, yeah. We do we do get a nice employee subscription. So it's been really nice to you know use our products for my daughter. So kind of work there and then also as a customer and really see you know the value they add and and how much they really help with your child's development. Um, it's not it's not just something I say as an employee. I use it as a parent. So yeah, you actually use it. Uh, that's yes. uh, just to, not to go too far into business here. But do you offer a B two B? Thing? Like, could Flowcast sign up as a customer of yours and we make that available to our uh, to our parents? You know, we've worked on, we've thought about that um, for a couple of years now. You know, we've worked with other partners, kind of like uh, Deloitte. They've done a lot for us, you know, on our ERP system. And they've got lots of uh, their employees who are interested in that. We have a partnerships team that's worked on, that's been working on a way to kind of get those corporate partnerships in place. But I will share feedback that you guys oh, are cool. super interested too. Because <laughs> we are, I'm sure you're familiar with the SNU, the kind of like smart, um, smart crib. So we, oh, yeah. we, they're, they're a client of ours and we partner with them and we send okay. all of our new, our new parents a SNU when they're, when their kid's born. And it is, oh, very cool. It's a me. It's so well received. So I'm wondering if we can even extend that to something else. Anyway, we're, uh, <laughs> we're getting sidetracked here, but that's very cool that you kind of made career decisions based on products you thought were, were cool and customer facing. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. It's something where I came from a really lame space where no one knew what we did. So it's a, it's a different thing I'm learning about like, oh, people who are actually inspired by the products that they're, <laughs> they're doing the accounting yeah. for. That sounds really cool. Yeah. But uh, on a, I guess, not as fun note, maybe, or maybe you're making it fun. 
One of the things we wanted to talk about was audit today, kind of how you've been preparing for audit and how you're thinking about that. So maybe um, before we before we head into that, could we take a step back and learn a little bit about the the state of the accounting department? You know, have you gone through audits in the past? What does that look like? You don't have to name names, but is it a big four audit firm or not? We'd love to understand the scope of it and then we can just hop into it from there. Yeah. So I would say kind of the evolution of our accounting team and our audit has been pretty dramatic since I started at Love Every. So when I started, we were, it was myself, an assistant controller and two staff accountants, and we're about a team of 11 or 12 today. So that's kind of grown with just kind of more staff accounts. We have a dedicated tax director and he's got um, a senior tax analyst under him. That became really important as we expanded internationally because I am not a tax accountant and that gets very tricky very quickly. So we definitely needed to bring someone on who is specialized in that. Um, but one of the marching orders that, uh, Rod, our co-founder gave me when I started was that he wanted us to move to a big four auditor. We were using, uh, kind of a local regional firm here in Idaho. Um, and he wanted to move us to big four. That's obviously kind of important as you're growing the company, you know, hoping to make some sort of exit someday. So we moved to KPMG. We use them now. We have used them since I got there. And we audit the business under PCAOB standards. So oh, okay. we're basically auditing under public company standards, even though we are not public yet, just so that when we get to that point, switching those audits from AI from kind of non-public company standards to public company standards can take a very long time in an IPO process. And we don't want to have a hang up, you know, when it comes to that. I think yeah. personally, I think it's best to be doing things the best you possibly can be and be completely prepared, you know, anytime the market's turn for us. So we've been doing that um, since our 2020 audit. So we've gone through a couple years now and definitely made a lot of progress along the way, specifically as we moved to a new ERP system and introduced a lot more automation in our day-to-day -day transactions. And so were you there for the audit experience with the regional firm? I was not. So I joined probably the month after they finished. Um, I will say we did end up re-auditing the last year that they had audited just kind of when we got those work papers over to KPMG and they were taking a look. There were just some questions that we were not all completely comfortable with. So we thought it was most prudent to kind of re-audit kind of the last year that they had been there just in case those would ever be needed in a filing. Yeah. Well, for for what it's worth and for for the listeners, you know, at Flowcast, we did a similar transition. Um and we also had when Big Four came in, they were like, eh, we want to look at these prior years. And we ended up having to go back a year and, and change some things. So I think I think rather common for that to, to yeah. come in. But I was yeah. a little struck by the the contrast and like the audit, I guess, how stringent they are with the regional versus the Big Four. I, I didn't think it would be that different of an experience, but EY is definitely tougher than uh, than the other firm was before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we found the same. You know, I've not to put KPMG on a platform, but we really enjoyed the team there. Um, you know, we've had some pretty consistent team members throughout, you know, a few years of engagements, which I know people talk about the turnover in public accounting, but, you know, we've been really happy with our partner. They've worked awesome. very well as a partner alongside us as we've, you know, kind of grown into like a big boy company. So they've been really great to work with. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's it's not about the firm. It's about the people and the partner. Yeah. That's it's Yeah. Like it's exactly a piece of paper. So you might as well work with someone who's reasonable and you like, and yeah, you know, it's going to, yeah, it's going to hopefully keep a team happy and keep them around. So you have the same staff and seniors coming out year after year. That's the the big one, right? 
Yes. And for us, you know, our business is a little bit more complex in the sense that we have a subscription model. Customers can prepay for subscriptions. They can pay as they go. So we have a lot of deferred revenue and bringing new staff on every year and trying to re-explain that over and over is just would be a massive headache. So having kind of those consistent staff and seniors that know exactly how we operate and what they're looking for has been really helpful. So you have inventory presumably that's getting audited, which is one of the more challenging accounts to audit. Then you have revenue and you're falling under, you know, 606 606. guidance, it seems like. Um, And then are you, then you're uh, potentially gearing up to go public. So layer some more complications into all of that. Um, All right, cool. So let's, uh, let's learn a little bit about how things have progressed over the last, uh, the last three years with the audit. Yeah. So you know, when I started at Love Every, um, we were on QuickBooks, which as we wanted to expand internationally, was not going to work. So we pretty quickly made the a choice to move to NetSuite. Um, it's pretty, in my opinion, dynamic and easy to work with ERP system. For me, it handles multi-currency and multi-subsidiary really well, which were the two most important things we needed in an ERP system. Um, I would say switching to them initially was pretty easy, but we were also using very basic transactions like just cash sales, everything kind of posts immediately. We were still having to journal things out of revenue and into deferred revenue and kind of manually tracking a lot of that 606 revenue recognition. Um, But our team, you know, worked extremely closely with our IT team and, and our operations team to kick off a project to automate revenue recognition and then also automate a number of other things for us, like uh, discount recognition. So as you said, we're having this conversation, you know, right after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, we do a big promotion that's $30 off a three play kit bundle, but it's structured as $10 off each play kit. So one of the complex things for us is that we need to recognize that discount. At the same time, we're recognizing the revenue for each kit that's shipping out. But that's happening over a span of, you know, six, maybe eight months even. So trying to automate all of that is is important for us so that someone on my team is not having to track all of that manually. Not not to get too nerdy here, but yeah. <laughs> would the accounting logic follow, you calculate the estimated lifetime value of the customer and then that discount is effectively recognized over the expected life of the customer? It's recognized over, and this is actually, I'm glad you brought this up. So we work also very closely with our legal team when we're kind of like writing up these terms and conditions, because sometimes how you treat the discount can really be dependent on how you're messaging it to your customers. So we're messaging it very specifically as $10 off each of your next three play kits. So we have to recognize it that way. For us, revenue recognition is a little bit different than maybe a SaaS company because we have recognizable products that have recognizable standalone selling prices. So even if you're buying, you know, you're prepaying for two, three, four kits, each of those kits has a very distinct selling price and a value attached to it. So it's fairly easy to recognize. Are you out, you're allocating value to each item within the kit? And then no, a- just as like a final, a final, I'm going to call it like a final assembly skew. You okay. may, you may be familiar and I guess I'll get into this a little bit because you brought up the inventory complexity. So we, when you go on, oh, sorry for a little context, uh, <laughs> like, like revenue allocation, oh, oh, you know, I did 081606. That's my bread and butter. Yeah. Inventory is an account I somehow only did once in my time and on it. So that's one where I'm like, I remember it being really hard and I don't, I'm out of my element. So just wanted to explain a bit of my knowledge before you, you yeah. hop into this. Yeah. The thing that makes our inventory, you know, a little bit more complex than other people's is when you come onto our website and you're buying kit one for your baby called the looker, 
you, when you check out, you're buying one SKU, the looker SKU, it's $80. Great. Good for you. What goes into that kit is 10 or 12 different items that we're procuring from multiple different suppliers. They're kind of like the building blocks of that kit. And we are bringing those specific items into inventory and using NetSuite's assembly build function to basically mash those things together into the final SKU and the final product that ships to our customers and that you see on the website. So it's, you know, we have, gosh, 20-ish kits, you know, available on the site. But those 20 kits, we don't just have 20 SKUs of inventory. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of different component SKUs that make up what the customers, the end customer sees. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. That is complicated. Okay. And then you have different <laughs> margins per box that's going out, but you're not going to, yeah. you're not going to change the fee and all that. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Okay. The, ra- the yeah. rabbit hole goes deep here. So what are, what are the auditors yeah. uh, focusing on? Well, kind of exactly like you said, two biggest things that they focus on are revenue and inventory. You know, those are our two biggest accounts um, on the income statement and on the balance sheet, revenue and COGS, and then inventory is our biggest, um, one of our biggest asset accounts. So those are the two things they really focus on. Um, I would say implementing automation in our revenue recognition because we are shipping physical goods and because we have the deferred revenue component is the single biggest unlock that we had for audit efficiency in the entire time at Vanilla Love Every. So we're processing probably 2 million individual transactions a year. Um, and I think that's, that's, I think that's fairly common for an e-commerce business, right? Like these are not, you know, $100,000 transactions. It's $100, $120, $80. So we're processing probably 2 million of those a year. And it's impossible for anybody to, you know, manually process those or keep track of those. Um, so with the revenue recognition automation that we've put in place and some of the save searches that we built to basically give our auditors, hey, here's everyone who ordered something. Here's everything that got recognized this month. Here's their name, their order number, the item, the dollar value. We basically give them a report of all of those monthly sales and they pull their their um, selections, their sample selections from that. And they're maybe looking at... 40 at the most, which if you think about that as a percent of how many transactions we we actually process every year is super, super low. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of able to do that because, you know, like I said, being subscription-based and having fairly similar pricing, we have a really standardized set of transactions. So assuming there's nothing that's like out of the ordinary and because we've built in so much um, automation in the system, controls within the system, we're not manually touching a lot. They really don't need to test, you know, as much as they used to. Yeah, that uh, I'm a little out of date on doing math in my head, but that feels like roughly a 0.05% sample selection, which yeah, is not it's something small. that may, maybe even 0.005 if I'm, I'm forgetting the decimals, here, but <laughs> yeah. that feels to me more like an IT audit than a substantive audit. It's like, yeah. it's kind of this gray area of a test of one around whether the IT solutions are working versus a full-blown substantive test. So do you know why they arrived at 40 being the number? I'm just, I'm, I don't know that that's 100%. I don't know that that's like 100% the number, but I do remember li- this last year, it was, you know, it was not in the hundreds of transactions. It was probably, you know, a couple dozen, um, which is good because when you're pulling, you know, a invoice, a payment out of Stripe, a shipping confirmation, it's a lot of backup for the team to pull. So it saved them a lot of time. Okay, cool. Awesome. I love <laughs> I love to hear that. 
Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's been a long, a long process for us. And it's one that I always, I always tell my team is like constantly evolving. I don't know how technical you want to get if you want to like talk about how we're doing this automation. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. We'd love to hear all about it. Yeah. So it's been a very cross-functional project, kind of like I said at the beginning, between our IT team and our uh, ERP admin team. So we have a couple of NetSuite ERP admins that sit underneath our uh, IT manager. Um, so really working with them, working with our operations team, and then my team to make sure all of this works. We use a software called Boomi. I don't know how familiar you are with Boomi, yeah. but it's, it's in effect, it's really like, I can kind of think of it as like a transaction highway. It's basically taking information from one place and putting it somewhere else. So it's basically taking the information from our point of sale system. So when a customer places an order on our website, um, it goes in Shopify and it's taking that order information and transferring it one to our 3PL. So the 3PL you know, knows what they need to ship out to the customer and then two into NetSuite. So it's creating a sales order in NetSuite. Boomi is then also picking up when our 3PL ships something out, they basically in their in their proprietary uh, WMS, which is like their whole their warehouse management system. Okay. They basically send a flag in their warehouse management system that's like, yep, we shipped kit one to Mike on this day. Here is, you know, the confirmation. Here's the tracking number. That information goes back to you, like the customer, you get the tracking number. And then it's also telling that suite, hey, this order got shipped on this date. Here is the item fulfillment. And that item fulfillment triggers the revenue recognition in NetSuite completely on its own. We don't touch that at all. Um, so that's kind of really when we first kind of were explaining this in in you know one of our all company meetings, our IT manager put together this, he calls it his subway map. And it's basically like all of the different flows that are going from order system to different 3PLs into NetSuite. And for us, since we have, I mentioned we're international, so we've got a number of 3PLs, you know, both here in the States, um, in Europe, in the UK, now in Australia, and shortly in Singapore and New Zealand as well. There's a lot of data points flowing all over the place, back and forth, and making its way into kind of the ERP system and making sure that the integrity of that data stays correct, like all the way through is obviously super important for us, but... Yeah. It's definitely a team effort. <laughs> so how how do you, you know, what do you do to get comfortable that the data flow is accurate? Yeah, so I would say, you know, we have a number of reports uh, that we kind of use as um, like checkpoints. Uh, I would also say that it's not a 100% perfect system. Like there are definitely times where orders get stuck. Uh, you know, they don't make it into NetSuite for some reason. Or more common for us is that a fulfillment um will fail. This is about to get very deep into the weeds, but I'm going to go there anyways. <laughs> so when, when I mentioned we have kind of complex inventory earlier, one thing that we also do differently than I think a lot of other companies, because we're in the children's space and we care so much about safety and quality of our products, you know, if, if something was ever amiss in one of our products, we want to have visibility into who got exactly what from what shipping. So we use, um, we use lots, lot numbered inventory. So not only is it like, you know, Mike ordered SKU 1 and we need to make sure that we pull SKU 1 out of inventory and recognize it in COGS. It's Mike ordered SKU 1 from lot 100 and not lot 200 and not lot 300 and on and on and on. So you kind of have to make sure the inventory is in each of these lots. Occasionally, you know, there's some sort of data discrepancy between NetSuite and between our warehouse and that doesn't happen. And in that case, a fulfillment will, will fail and then our operations team kind of goes in and investigates what was happening there. 
So we have a month-end process where we have a list of all those fulfillments that failed. The operations team will will fix what needs to be fixed, and then we kind of rerun rerun the job or make a manual journal entry as necessary. So it's not a perfect system. I don't think any system is, but yeah, no. But if it takes ninety nine point five percent of the work off your plate, and you you have an easy means of identifying the anomalies, that it's great. That's that's killer. So are you booking manual journal entries today with the the goal of of automating that, or you got to do it both? Well, that's where I was about to go. Uh, so we Sorry. do right now. No, no, no. You're great. Uh, so right now we do at month end, um, you know, if a fulfillment, you know, failed and then we are able to fix it, let's say it's 1128. So a fulfillment fails today and then we're fixing it December 1st or 2nd. There's a limitation that fulfillment is going to post on December 1st or 2nd. You can't really change the date. So my team is running a specific report um, to make a journal entry, basically backdate that revenue and then reverse it out the next month. Uh, but what we are working on and we have live in some of our geographies, not all of them yet, is uh, what we call an automated inventory sync. And so what this is basically doing is there's a file every night that comes from our 3PL that is basically a listing of all their on-hand inventory. And it pushes into NetSuite and makes any automated inventory adjustments to match the two systems up exactly uh, every single night. And we have flags set up where you know, if it's like, oh, we need to make an adjustment of a thousand SKUs or something really big, like I'm getting a report of that so I can see it and see what's really going on. But, you know, if it's, you know, five, five units here, three units there, it automatically posts and we basically are matching the two, which is also really helpful as we think about going into like our year end inventory account. You know, a lot of people who maybe Art, even prior to having this, we were at least doing a quarterly true up kind of like with our warehouse system to make sure that we're, you know, aligned between what's in the accounting records and what the warehouse says. But when you're waiting until your end to do your physical inventory count, you know, hope you hope that your warehouse is not like off too much and you don't need a ton of adjustments. But if that's not the case, you might end up posting, you know, a several hundred thousand dollar adjustment in December, which is not easy to stomach. So yeah. hopefully a process like this kind of smooths out those adjustments and really gives a truer picture of what's happening with inventory movement, you know, from January through December and not just on December 31st. So I have a a very newbie type question here. And this is because I also somehow hacked my way through EY without doing an inventory (laughs) count ever. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, But do you have, so do you send your team out to do inventory counts in addition to the auditors? That's like, I know it's like a dumb question, but I- No, it's not. Yeah. So we, I, so I mentioned we use a 3PL. So this is like a third party that basically warehouses and ships our products. So the way that we've kind of like handled our urine inventories, they are obviously doing the counts that is part of, you know, the service that a 3PL provides to you. Um, KPMG will be on site to basically supervise some of those counts. They'll make, like you mentioned, like some selections where they'll want to do test counts. And then we usually have um, a team member from our operations team at each location also during the count. They're not, you know, standing over the shoulders of our warehouse, you know, folks counting, but they are there to like answer questions of what lot should be, should this be in? Like, how do you want us to adjust this? You know, really providing kind of a communication link between like me and my, my inventory accountants um, and then the warehouse so that we understand all the adjustments that are going to be made. Okay. So, so yes. there's a bit no, of... I'm I'm not there on New Year's Eve counting inventory. No, <laughs> good. I'm, I'm glad to hear you've uh, you've promoted yourself out of that. That's uh, or gotten promoted out of that. That's awesome to hear. Yes. Um, and so it sounds like it's really you kind of trust 
what KPMG is doing, but then there's a little bit of, hey, let's verify it's happening correctly by having your ops person on site with them. Is that sort of a yes. fair summary of the take? Cool. Yes, I would say, yeah. Appreciate yeah. you answering my inventory 101 question there. That was great. <laughs> so of we've we, we talked a little bit about the um, uh, about revenue, the substantive portion of the audit. Now, you were saying you're PCOB ready, which means presumably there are some controls in place. You're looking at compliance. Where, mm -hmm. where are you at on the Sarbanes-Oxley front, the dreaded Sox front? Yeah. Um, so we, you know, I would say we're, we're very far along on business process controls. You know, we've got our processes documented, flow charted. Um, we're typically doing walkthroughs um, with our audit team. We're actually going to be scheduling them in about the next week or two. So I'll be doing that, you know, before all right. Christmas, all of our Fun. fun walkthroughs. Um, <laughs> so we're, you know, we're doing that. Uh, we're doing, um, you know, consistent reconciliation. We're using Flowcast for that. Um, sign-offs, you know, showing sign-offs on checklists, comments back and forth, um, that kind of thing. I would say, my biggest project coming up next year is going to just be continuing to work on IT controls. So I think business process controls are a little bit, I don't want to say easier because they are harder, but they are a little bit contained, right? It's kind of stuff that my accounting team is doing to make sure that we have appropriate controls in place over month end close, over accruals, over payroll, over equity accounting, things like that. ITGC kind of opens up the, I don't want to say it opens up Pandora's box, but it opens up that box to the rest of the company because then we're concerned about things like access controls, like who has access to what, what mm -hmm. other systems that are not considered financial systems, what other systems are producing data that we use in our financial systems that needs to be you know, under the umbrella of SOX. And that might change somebody on the engineering team's workflow. And they're like, why do I care about this crazy accounting thing? Like, this doesn't matter to me, but actually it does matter to them. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's also a lot of, I don't want to say culture change, but there's a lot of education that goes along with it, right? Because if you're not an accountant and you're not used to working in like a public company environment, there's no reason you would really know a lot about socks or like why it applies to you. So there comes, you know, some education as to why we need to take access away from people, why we need them to do things a certain way, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll say in my experience, the hardest part of that was the behavior change. Component. Yeah. Like it's very easy to document all the socks controls and this is how it should right. work. But yeah, I remember in my last job we had we had a, a bookkeeper. She she was AP. She had been doing the same same thing for eight years. And then we went public yeah. and we needed her to do new stuff. And it was just like, what? Why do I have to do this? Like it's been going fine. And in her defense, yep, she had, she hadn't gone through an audit. She wasn't a CPA. She didn't probably really yeah. understand the why. Um and in, in our situation, there was no uh we had no software to drive accountability around that behavior change. So that's what makes it really hard when you're just like please do this, please do this, please do this. Here's why we need to do it, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can, yeah. a lot of times you can do that for a while and people just don't, don't change. So anyway, that's yeah. awesome to hear you doing it pre-IPO because that's a way better time to do it than when you're yeah. frantically yeah. in a rush. Like, like this, I'm talking two months after we went public is when I'm having <laughs> these conversations. It was a mess. Yeah. And uh, no offense, but that's exactly what I want to avoid. <laughs> I always tell people, I, I'm no. like, I, I was not a last minute studier in college. I was not the type to stay up all night and cram for an exam. And that's not what I'm going to do in this situation. Like we will be ready to go day one when we ring that, uh, when we ring that IPO bell. 
No, it's it's awesome. And I mean, it sounds like a big driver as you have support at the highest levels around that. I mean, if you have a you know founder who's who's into this, that was that was that was the opposite of what we had, right? It was all viewed as a necessary evil to go public. So it was just a mad rush and spending money at the end and not not like what you're describing at all. I'm very jealous. I'd much rather be in your environment than <laughs> than the one I was than in the one I was in. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like you said, it's definitely tone at the top. Um, we also kind of in the past year, we've brought on a really great audit chair who has taken another company public. So he's really oh. been able to share a lot of his experience, you know, with me, with our founders, with our board and, and you know, basically, again, show everyone why this is so important to be doing now. Um, and then also, I would say boots on the ground, you know, lots of people who have come from public companies, um, you know, our VP of engineering, who's got some experience in this, she's got some DevOps engineers on her team as well. So when it comes to that ITGC stuff, exactly like you said, we've got it documented, we know what it needs to look like. And her team is now in that process of executing those changes, like how do we restrict access? How do we change permissions in our code, different things like that. So I, they, they deserve a shout out too. Like it's a lot of tech time that needs to be spent on this and, and they have it at the forefront as well. It's so, it's so much of IT's time. It's, it's really shocking. I think yeah, that's actually a really good argument for starting on the IT GCs pretty early because of how much actual work goes into making it operate that way. Whereas yes. things like, you know, review and approve a reconciliation, like you can put that in place and, and it doesn't take long to write that down and it can happen next month. Yeah. There's not a ton of like additional work that, that goes into yeah. that. Yeah. And that's kind of how I describe it too, is like, I can champion this project and I'm happy to have, you know, check-in meetings and, you know, make sure we're, we're doing what we need to be doing. But like, I can't, I can't write code. I don't know how to do any of these things. Like this is so out of my wheelhouse that like, we really need, you know, all team members to be invested. And like you said, it's my emergency is not their emergency. So I need to give them plenty of time, you know, plenty of time to get it done. Well, I, I didn't say that. That's well said on your end. My emergency <laughs> is not their emergency. I have, I need to think about things that way. That's very helpful. Um, so I'm curious, you, you mentioned an audit chair who came on board and he's been pretty helpful with everything as the controller, how much do you interact with the audit chair? Yeah, um, I would say we, you know, interact pretty regularly. So I'm, you know, in all of our audit committee meetings, you know, again, not public, but we're really trying to operate, you I, know, as formal as we can. So th this is something that I think a lot of people don't have like purview into what this dynamic is like in the relationship with the audit committee, the audit chair, mm -hmm. the controller, the CFO, all of that. So would you, would you mind just like, if, sure. if you're comfortable, you know, would you mind like pulling the curtain back a little bit and telling us what that's like? Yeah. Um, so we do quarterly audit committee meetings. So the attendees there are really our audit chair, um, one other board member who's on the audit committee, uh, both of our founders, Jess and Rod, um, our CFO that we brought on this past June, his name is Dan, he's there, and then um, myself, our legal team. And then depending on the meeting, KPMG is there occasionally. And when I say depending on the meeting, typical topics that we'll talk about. Um, so I, obviously we're not public, so we do not finish our annual audit until April. If I'm being honest, it's just because we get cheaper fees and we don't, yeah, we don't need, we don't need it to be done, you know, in that March filing timeframe. Uh, so we'll have, yeah. So we'll have, you know, an audit committee meeting kind of that late April, first week of May where KPMG, our partner and our manager on the engagement will attend. They'll kind of go through the audit results. There are required communications that need, they need to share with executive management. So, you know, our co-founders and our audit chair and the CFO, they'll go through that. They have kind of like a nice presentation. Um, so that's really what we're kind of doing at that meeting. 
Um, I would say at other meetings throughout the year, uh, we are hoping to do some practice like earnings calls. So we've mm. we've done these for a couple quarters where we're really just writing up our results, how we would present these, um, you know, on an earnings call and maybe poking some holes where we think it could be better. And we'd like to start sharing those uh, in the audit committee so they can kind of, again, give feedback, um, provide, you know, questions they think in investors or outside analysts might ask us. That's kind of another big topic. Um, controls. We've talked about uh, controls a lot today, but that's one of the other things we kind of provide an update on, you know, what controls are we working on doing? What controls are we testing? If we're testing anything at the time, you know, are we doing kind of like you said, like a test of one as we're as we're finishing some of these ITGC things, we'll go through that process. So we provide an update there. And, so um, how, and, and how transparent are you with the auditors during those types of, of updates? The control, um, the control one? I would say we're fairly transparent. Kind of like I mentioned at the, at the beginning, we have a very good partnership with our audit team. And I think that they have been really helpful in working with us along the way as we've implemented more and more controls. And I think, in my opinion, being transparent and upfront with them allows them to put more trust in the controls that we do have. So if I'm, you know, walking them through a process or I want to tweak something and change it and I let them know what we're doing, I think that goes a long way in the audit instead of just kind of keeping them in the dark until, you know, November, December hits and then being like, oh yeah, here's what we're what we're doing this year. We changed. Like you need to change all your processes. I have always viewed it as like a very collaborative relationship. I never understood why people like it's like the audit team's not there because they want to be. Like you hired them and you're paying them money to be there. Like if they didn't just pick you and like show up off the street. So I never understand why people have these like contentious relationships with their auditor. <laughs> I so I I ask that only because I know it can go both ways, but I don't want the audience to think that I am not someone who likes to be transparent with the auditors. Like I totally, yeah, you might as well be an open book, build some trust in, and yeah. and there's no there Okay, so let's say you're not transparent with them. Then what might happen? You might be working through some stuff. Maybe you forget a control that they would have recommended earlier. It comes audit time. We weren't aware of it. It blows up and makes the audit worse. And then there's a lack of trust, a lack of transparency. And it's just like they're going to be tougher auditors, whether they know it consciously or not, like subconsciously, they're going to be a little tougher on you. So I I always like, yeah, I love erring on the side of transparency and thinking about it, um, especially early stage. it's, It's almost like a partnership in many regards. It's like, hey, let's get things into shape here so we can get through an audit. And it's better to do it as a team rather than like in this adversarial motion. So anyway, just agreeing with you. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been it's been helpful too, like as we've expanded internationally. So this will be the first year um, that one of our international subsidiaries is likely material enough to be in scope uh, for that PCAOB audit. You know, previously they've been you know, a lot smaller just as we've tried to get started in these markets. But, you know, our Europe subsidiary has just grown so much and their nice. sales are are such a good, you know, percentage of our total company sales. And, you know, same with inventory that they're going to be in scope. But, you know, we feel good about that because my team centrally here in the U.S. does all of the accounting for all of our international subsidiaries. And we apply the same controls and the same processes in every market, no matter how big or small it is. And doing that, you know, it's not like, yeah, sure, they might make a couple more selections, but it's all the exact same information, the exact same processes. Like, it's not like some, you know, fire drill that we're super worried about because we haven't been doing what we need to be doing. That's 
super smart. I mean, in a lot of the clients we worked with, I've noticed that when they're international, there's a lot of distribution and they have like rather large accounting teams at each location. That's where things can get really messed up and you need you need a lot of software to help. Uh, you know, yeah. how you have different cultures at different places. It's hard to get people to operate on the same controls and everything. So yeah. do you have, is there like one regional bookkeeper there or is literally everything done from the United States? Everything's done from the States. So I would say our team is a little bit more functional specific. So we've got team members who are really focused on like inventory and they're doing that across geography. We've got, yeah. you know, team members who are focused on AP and they're doing that here in the US and here in Europe and in Australia. It's, you know, again, for us, like it's fairly straightforward. So I've never seen the need to kind of hire that local talent. And kind of like you said, usually if you have people in different places and your accounting is not done from one place, you need to test those controls in multiple places. But because we do it all here, it's just one control because we're doing the same thing for every set of books. Love it. Yeah. I think that's going to work out very well for you. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, cool. Well, any, anything? I mean, we have run, I think, a little bit, a little bit longer than what we were thinking, but this has been a fun conversation about, about yeah. audits. I, I really enjoy it. Um, you know, so right now you said you're focused on ITGCs. I want mm-hmm. to wrap it up with one, one little question, uh, a little sure. bit more random, but are you also responsibility or do you, is this a, even a thing for Love Every? Things like SOC reports, ISO, those type of more IT focused compliance areas? So we have started collecting SOC reports from our outside software providers, Flowcast being one of them, yeah, um, but really just to, you know, have them kind of on hand when we get to that ITGC process. But you're you're not, you don't have Providing. to get audited under SOC. You're good to go. So you're really focused on Sarbanes-Oxley, the financial audit. Let's make sure we're good to That's go. That's correct. Cool. Yes. Cool. Yes. And then yeah. I, I do have to ask, are you, are you using the Flowcast compliance product to get that up and running has our has our csm team done a good job reaching out to you about it uh we have talked about it we're not using it at the moment i will say the best part about flowcast for us has been like i said expanding internationally as quickly as we have like being able to create and duplicate multiple like closed checklists so we're creating honestly we've created like two different subsidiaries this past year and you know putting both of those in flowcast and being able to kind of like duplicate the closed checklists, duplicate um, reconciliations needed, and really pare down those lists. Uh, we don't need the same thing for every single subsidiary because some of them do different things. Uh, but trying to keep track of you know a close for three, four, five different subsidiaries manually would be completely insane. So it's been really helpful to you know have that in one centralized place so it's not in my brain or on a sticky note. Awesome. Well, yeah, the, the multiplier effect of international expansion is is wild. It can make things real tough. It's a lot. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, uh, I, I think we've talked about a lot of good things. I'd love to maybe just give you a, a minute to summarize what's your your biggest piece of advice for people getting ready to to go through their first audit and maybe thinking a little bit bigger about it as a, in a, under a PCAOB framework. So I'll let you uh, take it away and then we'll, we'll wrap there. Yeah. You know, I would just say that if you're not under a super specific deadline or time frame, taking the time to make sure you do it right the first time and you set up kind of a good foundation pays so many dividends in the future. And that can come from, you know, a lot of different places. You know, one of the things this sounds so silly, but one of the things that we do is like as soon as I finish one audit, like as soon as we finish our 2022 audit, I'm already setting up that 2023 audit folder because I know there's going to be certain journal entries, certain transactions that the audit team's going to want to look at. And I'm saving that back up there so that when December rolls around, I'm not trying to comb through, 
you know, an email from February that I kind of don't really remember happening, but like, I know they're going to want to see. So I think kind of like, as soon as you finish one, you know, already starting to prepare for the next one sounds very, um, type A of me, but I think it helps save a lot of time in the end. And like I said, you know, setting up, you know, even your footnotes, like take the time to make sure you're writing them correctly. Take the time to make sure you're formatting your tables exactly how you're going to want them to be so that you can, you know, start fresh with a new file next year instead of having to just start from square one. Yeah. yeah. It, it sounds like if I had to kind of summarize your as you're doing your work, you're you're thinking like an auditor. How is the auditor gonna gonna look at all this work that I'm doing and being very very kind of like visionary and forward thinking mm-hmm. about all that? And so think think like an auditor maybe is a good a good approach for <laughs> getting ready to be audited. Like that's yeah. yeah yeah. And I would say like don't expect it to be a quick process, right? Like the first year when we were like re auditing and then auditing like the, the current year at the same time. I, I I'm not even gonna lie to you. Like it took us. We didn't even finish until I think like July. Like it was crazy. But like every year as we've made these little improvements, like the audit's gone smoother and smoother and smoother. And now we're kind of pretty deep in our interim, and it doesn't feel like it's been a huge lift on me or the team yet cross my fingers and knock on wood. Hopefully I don't jinx it, but it's, it's felt very smooth and very quiet so far, which is really great. But that's, you know, that's three years in, like you have to put in the time and put in the work before you can get to a point where things are really, I don't want to say on autopilot, but before things are really, you know, running the way they should. Yeah. Yeah. Tough to get on autopilot, but sounds like you're doing amazing work to make that transition like as smooth as possible. So uh, yeah, congratulations. Uh, I would expect nothing less from our controller of the year, 2022. (laughs) This makes all the sense in the world. (laughs) Clear reason why you won that award. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today, Ashley. Really appreciated uh, hearing more about your story and uh, and how Love Every's handling their audit. Yeah. Thank you. Always great to chat. And of course, you know, we love the Flowcast products and it's been great for our team. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode.